Good morning, Ambassador Church. Pastor Mike here, and I'm just very excited to be with you. I'm actually on the Central Coast right now, spending time with uh, my family and taking a few days off, but still very excited to be with you um, and talk about our new series on spiritual habits that help us to have joy in our faith. And so uh, you might notice that like, there's a malaise, there's a frustration, there's a, a low-grade depression is a, a term I heard this week. Uh, that a lot of people are just going through because times are tough. And so um, we're taking a break from the Matthew series so that we can dig into the topic of how we can organize our lives to have joy in Jesus. Um, spiritual disciplines basically do that function for us. It's like this process of us organizing our life in such a way, developing spiritual habits so that we can reorient our mind and, and, and our priorities and our schedules around having our faith centered around Jesus. Because if we don't, we know, if we don't develop our habits to help us grow in our faith, then uh, what that means is we develop habits that pull us away from our faith or pull us away from our faith in Jesus and having our hope and our mind and our hearts centered on Him. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I just want to introduce this series to say we're doing five spiritual disciplines, one each week. And today, the topic, the spiritual discipline that we're talking about is the spiritual discipline of worship. The spiritual habit of worship in Psalm 95 is a, a, a powerful kind of topic and passage for us. It's, in, it's an invitation into worshiping the biblical God, the God of gods, the king above all kings. Psalm, Psalm 95 starts in verse 1 with the word come. It's an invitation. And then it says, let us sing for joy for the Lord. There's there's a participation for it in our worship. And then it says, for the Lord, in verse 3. It's, uh, it's asking us to engage our mind in this process. And then it goes on in verse 6 and verse 8 to have us bow down to God. There's a will, there's a, there's a volition, there's a decision being made to bow down to the Lord. There's a discipline being exhibited here in verse 6 and in verse 8. Uh, there's a mind, there's a heart and a listening and a, a thinking about God that draws us into worship as well. That's all a way to say that worship is an all-encompassing habit and a process that reorients our mind, our will, and our emotions, our thinking, our feeling, and our doing to God. That's what worship is. Um, in the Old English, the word worship is worth-ship. It's simply the process of finding great value and worth in something, which is something that we all do. We all find some things in our lives valuable. We find our identity in something. We find our source of hope and joy in something. And that's what the Bible calls worship. You know, uh, the great theologian Bruce Springsteen said in one of his songs that everyone has a hungry heart. We all have a heart that's hungry for and longing for something externally to bring us that joy, that identity, and that hope. And that's something that we all do. It's worship. Um, the problem is, what if I don't love the thing that I ought to love? Or worse yet, what if I don't even know what I truly love? You know, in the Harry Potter books, there was a mirror of Erised that uh, because it's a children's story, the, sim the symbolism is not buried too deep. Uh, Erised is the word desire spelled backwards. And Harry, Harry goes up to the mirror and what he sees in the mirror is his parents doting on him, caring for him, and loving him. 
And uh, it's amazing to him. He goes and gets his friend Ron. He brings Ron. Ron sees himself as a sports athlete and as a famous, successful person. And then Harry's mentor comes into the scene and says, this is the mirror of Erised, where what your heart truly longs for and truly desires is pictured right in front of you. Well, the question is, for us this morning, what would be in that mirror for you? If you were to stand in front of that mirror, would you see a mom with kids glowing and joyful at being in her presence? Or would you be a person that sees a success in career or the approval of others? Or would you be the son or daughter that your parents finally approve of? Whatever it is, it's a dangerous question. It's a difficult question. What do you truly desire? What do you truly love? What do you truly, what the Bible calls, worship? So, to intro us kind of into this series and into this subject of worship, the question stands, what do you love? What do you worship? We're going to dig into these topics and more uh, as we process through three things in our passage for today. What worship is, why we worship, and how we can worship Jesus. Uh, we're going to start with some theory, we're going to start with some biblical uh, exposition, and then we're going to finalize with some practical application as a community how we can worship Jesus as a new habit and a new discipline in the midst of a time where our schedules have kind of been disrupted and it's a time for us to redevelop a new schedule for our lives. What worship is? Worship is the act of finding ultimate worship and, and that process engages your mind, your will, and your emotions. There are three calls in this passage as I kind of alluded to earlier. In verse 1, it says, let us sing. It involves the, the emotions with joy. In verse 6, there's a submission and an action that engages the will. And in verse 8, it involves thinking. Let's hear and let's listen. Let's accept what God says. It, it also stands to reason, if we're reflecting on this process as Christians, that if your worship of God only involves your mind, only involves your decisions, your will, or only involves your emotions, then either it's not truly worship, because it might just be a process, a religious duty that you're doing to maybe please God or get God to give you what you want, or it just seems like the thing to do to be a part of a religious community, but it wouldn't be truly worship. Or, if it is worship, it, you might be lacking the value and the worth of what you have in our God. If your worship only involves your emotions, but not your will and your, um, your thinking, or only your thinking and not your will and your emotions, any one of those... Uh, might be you lacking the truth, the goodness, and the emotion-consuming uh, goodness of who God is. And the passage details just different imagery, different truths, different realities of who God is so that we can worship Him, we can be uh, consumed with it, we can dream in that worship. It, it, it's the thing we think about when we don't have anything else to think about. And we can love God with our mind, our will. And our emotions. The passage details all these cool reasons. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Like if you're just to meditate on that for a second, he's the rock, the dependable source and foundation of our life. In verse 2, let us come before him. We can come before him. He's a God that we can come before in prayer and in worship. That's good news. Verse 2, Let's come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Verse 3, 4. 4. 
the reason that we can worship. It's saying, engage your mind. Four, look at the reasons why we should worship him. In verse three, for the Lord is a great God, the great king above all gods. Like I can't even get in every word in detail. You're, you would tune out. The, your attention span would be too short. I don't have that much virtual time with you. And so we can't go through every single thing that we, should, we can worship God. But it does illustrate for us what worship is. The process of finding great worth in an object, in a person, in, in God, that involves our mind, our will, and our emotions. It reminds me of when I got the wedding ring, when I was engaged to my now wife Hannah, and we, I went to the Diamond District in LA, I went down some stairs, if I remember correctly, down a corridor, down to the, some back alley thing, uh, where some, uh, some friend of a friend of a friend, Syrian family, uh, sold diamonds and I went in there and uh, we had a conversation about e the difference between Syrian Orthodox and Evangelical Christianity and then we, we got into it and we did some diamond dealing and I, I in the process of buying a diamond I wanted to get as much value as I could from the process and that's why I went to the diamond district and then they show you the rings they show you the diamonds and then in order to assess the value of any diamond you have to think of the cut and the clarity and the carrot and the something else and you you grab the jeweler's loop. A jeweler's loop is that little magnifying glass that allows you to look right at a diamond. And in that process, you see the way the light shines through the diamond, the way the colors refract through the gem, the, the clarity, how big it is. You're able to assess it because you look deeply into that diamond. And as was the case for me, I saw the worth in something and I had to have it. And so that's what I, I did. I, I bought a wedding ring for my wife. In the same way, when we worship God, we do that. We look into who he is. It engages our mind. Because of our mind, uh, it, it causes us to make different decisions and different habits in our life. Because of who God is, it changes our emotion. In some moments, we're, we're, we, we cry, we shout, we dance because of who God is. That's what worship is like. We analyze and react to how good he is in worship. That's what worship is. Uh, if I can go on a tangent for a minute. Also, one of the things that we should know about worship is that worship is second nature. What I mean by that uh, is that Aristotle, philosopher guy from a few years back, used the term second nature. And it's not first nature. First nature is like hardwired biology, like uh, the fact that you don't have to think about your heart beating right now. It just beats. That's nature. It's just wired into your being. You don't have to think about breathing because you just breathe naturally. That's first nature. Second nature is this concept that we use um, even today to describe something that feels very natural. It's just who you are. It's just hardwired into you, but it's not actually hardwired into you. It's second nature. It's just the way you react. It's just the person that you are. It's just the personality that you have. And it, as we know, study psychology, study biology or whatever, and people come to the conclusion that there are things that are just part of who we are but they're learned, they're habituated, they're, they're in us, they're, we don't think about them, they're not decisions that we make, but they're not hardwired into our biology. Worship is like that. Worship is second nature. Uh, James Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, goes into great detail, fantastic book if you're up for the read, about how our habits develop what we worship. He says, 
that um, in contemporary cognitive psychology, habit, a habit is an acquired disposition and default orientation that you've learned and acquired that is now wired and woven into the fabric of your character. And now that habit is a kind of thing that you do without thinking about it. Aristotle called it second nature. It mimics first nature biology because it's a default mode of your life. Here's the point. The point is that what we worship is a habit. It's a hardwired woven thing that's second nature in our life. And it stands to reason, since we're talking about spiritual disciplines, that if you want to change what you worship, it's not just about bearing down and saying, I will worship Jesus. You, there is some volition, there's some will and some decision making in that process. But you might also want to think about how am I organizing my life to, to coach me to actually have my second nature worship beyond my family or on my success, or on my approval, or on my comfort, or on my security, or on money, or my appearance, or power. Worship is second nature. You have to do some background work. It's actually a little bit like um, uh, an iceberg. You know, an iceberg has this ice that comes out of the water, but underneath the water is this much larger thing. And in the same way, the decisions that you make are like the iceberg that's above the water. I decide to go to church. I'm making the decision to worship Jesus by turning this song on or reading this passage and thanking God. That's the decisions that you make. But there are all these kind of background things that your heart loves, that your heart uh, desires, that if you uh, change your habits, change your organization of your life, you could train your mind and your heart to instead of running directly to the approval of others, you run directly to a God that is worthy of worship. In the same way, um, it's, it's good to just do some evaluation and ask, you know, what do I love? If you want to get to know someone, for instance, you can ask them what they do and they'll tell you what they do. You could say, what do you do for work? What do you do for fun? It's a good way to get to know someone. If you ask them, what do you think? That's like a, also a good way to get to know someone. What do you think about the socio-cultural and political ideas of our day? And you can have a, a robust dialogue and then you get to know someone. If you really want to get to know someone at the core, you have to ask questions about what they love. What, what makes you dream? What gets you excited? What makes you shout and dance and sing with elation? That's at the core of who we are. That's the, the, ice, the iceberg under the water. It's the core of who you are. And if you want to change what you worship, if you want to change how you act and the decisions that you make above the water, so to speak, then you have to do some serious business, some, develop some new habits that redirect your worship from something else to God. And habits help us to reformat those, those hearts, our mind, and our emotions to worship God. Secondly, why we worship. We worship because it's not a question of if you worship, but what you worship. Everyone finds ultimate value and worth in something. It's simply a question of what you worship. And if you worship, the only thing that deserves your praise. And then kind of sub point number two under uh, why we worship. Why we worship? One, because it's, it's only a question of what you worship. Uh, sub point two. It, what you worship shapes your life. I mean, can't we kind of agree that what you put your faith in, what you put your life in, it does shape your life. There's some sort of relationship, reciprocal back and forth relationship between what you truly love and how much it loves you back.
Let's process that claim for a minute. If you look at verse 3, it says, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. The assumption in the passage is that everyone worships, but that God is the greatest object of worship. He's the great God above all little g sources of worship. You might think, well, of course the Bible would say that. It's in an ancient time where people believed in polytheism. But let's just pause and reflect on our own cultural moment and say, don't you look to something for your identity? Don't you love and delight in something? Don't you chase after something that gives you some sort of meaning? And of course, don't you think that there's some reciprocal relationship between what you worship as to whether it loves you, forgives you, and is with you in return? David Foster Wallace, uh, an American author, uh, by no means a religious scholar, he wrote, Here's something else that's weird but true. Interest, interest in, um, in the interest of day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism, he writes. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. It, it's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual, and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs and cliches, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth in front of you in daily consciousness. Worship power and you'll always feel weak and afraid. You will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship intellect and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. So, well-known American author, uh, and by no means religious person, says everyone worships. The Bible says everyone worships. In the end, our point also is that uh, worship is not just about creating worship for God or committing worship for God, but it's rather primarily about redirecting what you already worship and directing it at the only object of worship that deserves your love and loves you back. Power does not love you back. The approval of others is kind of a trap because you act like the person that other people want you to act like, but then when they like you, you know that they only like the fake you, and so you, it's not as satisfying. Beauty is a trap because you always feel ugly, and you'll, as age hits you, it's going to be a real disappointment. You'll die a thousand deaths before they finally plant you, uh, Wallace says. Real worship is not just about committing worship. It's about redirecting worship at God. And then the second point is that we can agree that some things do not treat you well. They kill you. They don't forgive you. They don't love you when you worship them. They don't, they're not worthy of your worship. And so some of the consequences of your life might be the product of the bad things or, or the, the good things that you're trying to make into God. They're not always bad things. They're oftentimes great things. Beauty, money, power, they're all great things but you make them into God, and that's when they destroy you. Some of the problems in our life, some of the major dysfunctions that you have in life, are the product of you worshiping 
the wrong thing. Let's reflect on that. And let me kind of wrap this up with this. Thirdly, how can we worship? Let's get practical. We can worship like our passage describes in community. Verse 6 and 7 says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord God, our Maker. For He is our God. We are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Worship is by nature meant to be communal. And I know the reason I bring it up is because what a crazy topic to bring up when we're not allowed to meet in some regards from the uh, local governments or at least the state government. And uh, it's just a crazy time. I know it's a crazy time to bring this topic up. But to the extent that we're preparing for long-term spiritual growth, you have to know that podcasting a sermon and then podcasting some worship is not going to help you uh, grow in your faith in the same way. Worship is meant to be communal. That's not a ploy or any kind of statement about we should reopen or why haven't we opened already. I know people are um, frustrated and clamoring in many churches all around the country and even in our area. I'm not trying to make a commentary on any of that outside of saying a few examples actually. Consumer Christianity will only take you so far. You're meant to be a part of a community in worship. You're meant to see different aspects of the, the gem that is our God through the lives of the people around you. Uh, second application uh, regarding communal worship is that the more diverse that community is around you, the more fragments of the gem you'll see. The more ethnically diverse, the more age diverse, the more socioeconomic, you know, like, like rich people, poor people, middle class people, the more cultures, the more types of people you have in your community, the more of God you will see in the lives of the people. Somebody else will bring up in a Bible study, uh, hey, as a blue-collar worker, I see this about the fact that God works on my behalf through Christ. And somebody who has some big legacy in their life because they're um, so, you know, from a long line of uh, wealthy people and they're continuing some um, family legacy, they'll be able to say, my legacy is found in Jesus. Somebody who's Korean, somebody who's uh, German will have a different aspect of the gospel that resonates to them because of their experience. And so worship is beautiful when it happens in a diverse community. The more diverse you have, the more uh, wonderful it is to experience the complex beauty of God. And then third application is that we have to find creative ways to worship together. No duh, right? We've had to pivot to live stream. We reopened for a minute, yada, yada. Let's just stay flexible. Let's stay faithful to say, okay, God, in the, in the middle of all the crazy stuff that's going on right now, uh, how can we be communally worshiping you? And let's just stay creative. And actually, part of the reason I bring it up is to say I'm very proud of you. I'm very proud of our church for continuing to hang in there, to stay united around the gospel, to have dialogue about how and when we can regather in outside services, indoor services, hybrid services, virtual services, uh, watch parties, and all of the like. But I, uh, I bring it up to say the passage shows us worship in the end, when it happens, meant to be communal. Uh, worship is also meant to, to have us submitting to the truth. And so if we're talking about spiritual disciplines, then we need to find ways to get the truth into our mind so that it affects our emotions and our decisions. And so in the end, worship is not just my truth about God. It's not just everyone else's individual truth about God, as if um, you know, God is kind of just defined by all their individual truth. We all submit to the truth of how God has actually revealed himself in history, specifically through Jesus Christ, and in Scripture, in His Word, we submit to that truth, and that's how we have um, 
a worshipful, an accurate worship of God, an unorthodox, a, a correct worship of God. So you might think it's kind of closed-minded and anti-intellectual to say, hey, we just submit to who God is in Scripture and that's the God that we worship, but that's the only credible way to do it. Everything else is just actually a non-communal, my own truth is the authority kind of worship. And in the end, you will never find a God worth delighting in if it's just your truth about God, your opinion about God, because that God that you serve is just informed by yourself. And so you'll, if you make God in your image, so to speak, then you will not have a God that's any better than yourself. Let God disagree with you. Read the Bible and say, God, show me who you are in actual terms. Let me come to your, your truth instead of expecting you to come to my truth. And see if you don't have a God that is wonderful and above our culture, above our Western individualistic expressive culture, and something that's ultimately eternally beautiful. And then lastly, lastly, you need to create a schedule that helps you to worship and reformat your mind and heart to worship Jesus. James Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, goes on great detail to say that you have to think of your day like a liturgy. Think of your life like a liturgy. And you know, a liturgy is a religious service. Um, if you know that term, it's like a religious term. It's, it's meant to say the order of a religious service. And some churches have more liturgical worship where they show up and they have a thing that everyone says at the beginning of the service and then everyone reads a psalm and then everyone reads a passage from the gospels and then they bring communion down and they take communion. There's an organization to the worship and every element of the liturgy has a component to it that's meant to guide our minds and our hearts towards worshiping God. That's what a liturgy is. Think of your life as a liturgy. And I'll give you an example. When you wake up in the morning and you go right to your cell phone for entertainment, what does that liturgy tell your heart about what to worship? It might say, what I really need in life is to be entertained. I need to feel good at every moment because otherwise I don't know what's going to happen to my life. Well, is that true? Where is that written? Or might it be the case that God has a plan for your life that does involve some trials so that he can refine you and change you. And if every time you go through trials, you have to run away to entertainment that's at your fingertips, how is that going to train your worship? Think about that liturgy. And maybe as a spiritual discipline then, change that liturgy to say, I'm going to change my life and my organization and my habits so that it trains my second nature and my first nature above the water iceberg, below the water iceberg. I'm going to try and change all of who I am, my mind, will, and emotions to worship Jesus. And so I'm not going to look at my phone right when I get up. I'm going to look at, at Jesus. I'm going to take a second to have a cup of coffee and think about his word. I'm going, to, I'm going to read for five minutes. I'm going to meditate for five minutes. I'm going to pray for five minutes. Whatever those habits are, they could be worshipful because you change your liturgy, your, the organization of your day. Think about midday, right when you start getting anxious and frustrated with work, that you take a breath and you say, my identity is not in my job success. And I refuse to worship this. I'm going to just take a breath and, and read or think or sing or put my headphones in and worship Jesus for a minute. Change that liturgy, change your heart. And then maybe the next time trials come, you notice yourself responding totally different than you did in the past. Because you have done the spiritual discipline of redirecting your heart to have hope in Christ. It's a part of who you are now, and it's going to change you. That's what spiritual disciplines do. So phone liturgy, family expectation liturgy. You know, you have so many habits in your family and so many sayings and so many things that you just grew up with. Maybe it's 
time to evaluate the way your family treats you and talks about things and, and the, the habits that you have in your daily life with your kids or with your spouse or with your extended family of, of origin and say, you know what, let's mix up some of those habits to see if it changes our dependence on our family's expectations or our family's uh, communal corporate sins that have gone from generation to generation to generation, like we all have. So family liturgy. Think about your day and think, how can I reorient my time to draw my heart and my mind engage with the truth of God and to have my decisions reflect the good God, the king, great king above all gods. And I just want to end with like one of the coolest things about our passage is in verse 8, 9, 10, and 11, where we see it ends on kind of a down note. It's a wonderful passage of worship, and then it just ends with, uh, verse 11, I declared in my oath of anger, they shall never enter my rest. God is um, describing his relationship with the people of Israel as they left Egypt in the Exodus. It says, don't harden your hearts as you did in Meribah, uh, as you did in the day of Massa in the wilderness. Uh, these are your ancestors. In verse 10, they are people whose hearts have gone astray. Notice, they went astray from God. They need to reorient their allegiance back to God. And then in verse 11, I had anger with them. They shall never enter my rest. It ends on this note where, it, where the Israelites turned away from God with their affections and their worship and their allegiance. And it begs for some sort of fulfillment in Jesus. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 4 goes into this exact same historical moment and how Jesus is the, the resolution to it. Hebrews 4.9 There remains then... A Sabbath rest for the people of God. Uh, Psalm 95, they shall never enter my rest. Big question mark. What will happen to God's people uh, in, in Christ? Hebrews 4, 9, there remains then this rest. Now for the people of God in Jesus. Verse 10, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Uh, people who are Christians, they rest from their works to justify and save themselves and need to be good before God. Instead, Jesus Christ, in his work on the cross and in his perfect life, worked out all of our salvation, and so now we're saved in him. We can rest from the works of making ourselves good enough before God. And it says, just as God did from his, referencing Psalm, I'm sorry, uh, Genesis chapter 1. And I love this passage because in verse 11 it says, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following that example of disobedience. So let us enter that rest. And I remember we even talked about Sabbath the other day, and it was a neat, uh, neat Sunday morning, and I remember bringing up this passage. I just love it because we're talking about spiritual discipline, spiritual habits. And in verse 11, it's not that we save ourselves, it's that we make every effort to organize our lives in such a way that we enter into the rest. So the effort we're making is not to justify ourselves, but to enter into the identity and the being where we can take a deep soul breath and exhale and say, the work to save me and to make me good enough, to make me acceptable is done in Christ. And now let me organize my life so I'm reminded of that rest. So I live in that restfulness. If you worship, worship Jesus out of a need to justify yourself or to please God or get God to answer your prayers and say yes to your prayers, it won't be restful. The real heart of worship is a heart that says, let me enter into song. 
Let me enter into thanksgiving and prayer. Let me bow down to your will for my life, Jesus. Because in that, I'm taking on that light yoke, to borrow some words from Jesus, that rest and enter into it so I can have my life filled with that kind of restfulness, even as I worship Jesus. I want to close with one uh, metaphor that will propel us into the rest of this series as we talk about five different spiritual disciplines, and it's this, that we function as sailors. Uh, on a sailboat, you put up the sails, and you get the rudder into the right place, you shift weight on the boat so that it's in the right position for the boat to go forward. We enter into God's rest, we develop spiritual disciplines, not because we're trying to create the momentum of our spiritual growth, but we, we get ourselves prepared to have God move. Sailors get the sails ready, they get the rudder straight, they shift around the weight, but they don't create the wind. And in this metaphor, God is the wind. He's going to move powerfully in our community and in your life, bring you joy, bring you satisfaction, bring you hope, eliminate fear, help you to hold on during difficult times. When He moves in His Spirit, spiritual disciplines are us getting prepared for God to move. And so we might worship just to develop that habit, just to get ourselves ready, to hoist up the sails, to get the rudder straight, and say, God, will you move powerfully? Will you help me grow in my faith? Will you change the fundamental second nature of what I worship and help me to be reoriented back to you? And so every spiritual discipline that we walk through in this series is going to be us putting up those sails and saying, God, will you move in us? Will you move in me? Will you move in my family? Will you change me? I'm ready. I'm changing my habits. I'm changing what I love, what I emote, um, what I think around your truth. Let's pray that God blesses us in that effort.